Hey everyone, welcome to the 57th episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is Jay Berger. Jay reached a career high of 7th in the ATP Tour rankings and won three singles titles in his career. Jay was the head coach at the University of Miami, became the lead coach for men's tennis at the USDA, and currently works with one of the best young Americans, Riley Opelka. On today's episode, we discuss learning your ideal intensity, why you need to watch more tennis, and his best advice for the 4-0 player. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Jay, welcome to the pod. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm excited to be here. I follow you on Instagram. I learn from you. And so I, I love talking tennis. So I'm excited to, to be here with you. The show has been doing well, and most people say it's because I've been able to get great guests. And this afternoon, I was counting, and five of my 50 guests have mentioned you as this mythical, mythological godfather of tennis coaching. So there's no pressure, but you are the guest <laughs> that, that the great guests look up to. So right. no pressure there. But you know, you were a great player. Before we get into your coaching career, you were a great player. Uh, you reached the quarterfinals of multiple majors. You were a career high of number seven in the world on the ATP tour, which I did not know back in the day when I was admiring you as a coach. And many people who watched you back then and who knew you as a player have mentioned your kind of insane intensity that you would practice with and compete with. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could just explain, was that, was that intensity a skill that you kind of innately had, or was that something that was kind of coached and brought out into you? Yeah, so that that's a great question. Um, I mean, first of all, being a, being a smaller player, I didn't I didn't grow until I was probably about seventeen. So at sixteen, I was five three. If you win, you want to win matches, you got to be pretty tough. But uh, I was very fortunate. You know, I didn't I didn't jump around very much with my coaching. So I had the same coach from when I was about twelve and a half years old. Really, through my prof professional career, you know, I would bring some other people in, like a Brian Godfrey or some people to help me, but. Really, uh, George Paris really kind of molded me into the competitor. I think part of it was genetics, um, but part of it was that I, I put a lot of thought into it. George believed in humans more than the humans believed in themselves. So if you have a coach that really believes in people and you have a player that's willing to go that extra yard, you know, you, you can kind of do, do incredible things. I, I think the other thing is that I was very fortunate at the time to have mentors like Brian Godfrey, one of the greatest workers uh, in tennis, uh, to see what he did. Harold Solomon, some of, some of the players that actually trained right around me. And, and then that's the way I found I, I love I love tennis. And, and I thought tennis was fun when you're intense and enjoying it. Um, I, I can't think of anything worse than going out there being brain dead and hitting a tennis ball. So I, as a young player, that's the way I, I grew up. And uh, that's the way I was trained. And and I would say that's the way I also train people. Do you think that's a skill or a characteristic that, you know, some people out there don't go out and they're not like chewing nails in the parking lot ready to go, but you have to have some level of intensity to improve and kind of maximize what you have. If people out there aren't naturally wired that way, is it, yeah. is there a way that you can kind of build that in yourself? Yeah, I think first of all, having coaches that are examples of that are really important. I mean, that's something that, when I became a coach, it was very easy for me because I could hit with the players, but I was able to be a mirror for them and to show them. That's a concept that they talk a lot about in Spain is having mirrors, somebody that you're kind of looking at and trying to become like. 
Um, we see that in some of the coaches that, you know, you look at the group that developed Riley Opelka and Tommy Paul and spent a lot of time with Fritz, Diego Moyano. I mean, he has such an intensity. And so a lot of that is through example. Um, I think, again, I was probably genetically predispositioned to be a little bit off in my head and, and able to get to that level of intensity. I also had to do it to win because I, I didn't have any size. Um, but, but I do think that's a, that's something that people can learn. You can have a very calm demeanor, but when you're on the court, there's, there's your level of intensity and then also not confusing intensity. It's, it's a relaxed intensity. You don't want your body all tense, but it's, it's a, you know, they call it arousal level and, and bringing that up. And I, and I do think there are some drills. I mean, there's one drill that I do with a lot of players because, you know, I coach some juniors and, and, and some other players that, that I think have, has really worked. And that's, starting somebody at the level almost of zero. So zero, you feed a ball and the ball goes by you. And at one, you're not even moving. And two, you're starting to move a little bit more. But allowing players to understand intensity and kind of where where they feel most comfortable and where, and where as a coach you want them to be. Super interesting. So do you find then with that drill that 10 is usually not the number that people want to be at? Maybe there's like a... 10 would be five. too much. 10 would be too much. You know, it, it's an it's an eight and an eight or a nine. And, and for some players, maybe it's a seven, but I, I do think it's important for the coach and the player to have a reference point. And that's what I think that drill does. And it's something that I've used when I remember it. I've been coaching so long, I forget half the stuff, but when I remember it, I think it's really been effective in somebody understanding kind of where I want their movement, where I want their intensity. And then again, just remembering to tell them I'm not talking about intensity in your arms. It's more that I want your legs tight. I want you feeling the adrenaline through your body, but we also have to not have a nice relaxed arm. So you've mentioned twice already now that although you were a great player, you said, oh, I was, you know, a little bit on the smaller side. And so maybe you weren't, you know, reaching the top 10 just because you were purely physically gifted. I'm always curious talking to great players, were there any tactical principles or pillars for your tennis foundation that you feel like led to your success? Yeah. I, I mean, I think because, I was always always playing catch up with everybody. I didn't have this pressure on me and I was able to kind of develop my my competitive skills. What are some of the pillars? I mean, the pillars were that I was okay with things as long as I held myself to an incredibly high standard in practice. So I was I was okay with the results and I've learned this a lot as I've been coaching is if we, if we can kind of detach from the results and really focus a little bit more on the process, which is not easy because everything in tennis is kind of exterior. You know, if, if a junior becomes really good, they get clothes, they get rackets, they get scholarships. So it is a little difficult, but, you know, I was always, I didn't feel that pressure that I was the guy for whatever reason. So it allowed me to develop my game. It allowed me to be a, to, to be an all court player. I learned a lot of that in college, actually, by going to Clemson and, you know, developing, coming forward a little bit more. But, you know, I would say what, what got me to that top level is the way I went about things. Um, I do think that I practiced probably, I don't know if I practiced longer than anybody, but I practiced in the top one to 2% of how I went about my practices. They were very focused. I understood my game. Um, I was very independent in regards to it. I could coach myself, which I think is really kind of a lost art these days. And I, I kind of could understand what was happening on the other side of the court. I, I realized, I think players and young kids in this day and age, they don't have a great awareness 
from what's happening on the other side of the court. You know, I'll be coaching somebody and, but did you realize they were cramping? Well, you didn't realize they were cramping because you're so pissed at yourself for missing that ball. So I think the way I grew up was a little different where we were kind of dropped off at the courts, which is a little old school, the way it used to be done. I did have some coaching, you know, and my, my parents were certainly involved, but a lot of, a lot of what, what I did was really up to myself. If I wanted to be a player, I had every tool in front of me to become a player. If I wanted to go out there and waste my time, I also had that, you know, the ability to do, to do that. And I think that's a little lost in, in the coaching these days. You know, parents want, want the coach to be with the player all the time. They don't allow them to, to learn how to become independent. And that's something I think, you know, my son is, uh, is a great golfer, one of the best in the world and played on a Ryder Cup team. And, um, and that was something that, was instilled in him is that if he wanted to become a player, he kind of had to do it on his own and and had to have that internal motivation as opposed to a lot of external motivations that I think a lot of kids have today. It's such an interesting mindset because I remember about a year ago, I was going to go on a golf trip and the parent was kind of like, well, what is my kid going to do? Yeah. And I'm like, well, they're going to pick up that phone that's in their hand 23 hours a day and they're going to text a friend and they're going to go play sets, which they need to play more of anyway. And a lot of times I feel like practice now, it's like they view it as it has to have a coach there. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. And I, and, and I kind of take things from and I learn from other things outside of just what I do. And, and I remember one day I was in Key Biscayne and my kids where we lived. I was uh, either working for University of Miami, I think, at that time. And um, my kids had soccer practice. My, my Daniel, who's the golfer, was a very good soccer player. So Nadia and I, we have four kids. So we're not so good at keeping plans and calendars and happened to be a holiday. And there were three other stupid parents that also didn't realize it was a holiday. So we all, you know, all four, they had four kids that showed up at the, at the field to play soccer for, um, to have a practice. And then they realized that no coach was coming and you see the parents jumping in the car and taking their kids. And it kind of made me realize like, you don't need that. We have a ball. You have four kids. You have goalposts. Go out there and do it. And I think it's a little bit lost in in the United States to some regard is that parents think more is always better. And, and a lot of times kind of less is better. Um, and you can see it. There, there are some kids that are quite good players at a younger age that can't feed the ball because they're so used to having the coach feed the ball in. That's a great, great testament to how much time they've spent um, spent with a coach on the court. So, you know, certainly – a big part of being a great tennis player is being independent and being self-motivated and internally driven. And to do that, sometimes you have to take a step back. Sometimes you have to talk a little bit less um, to the player. And, and that's something that I think, I think I've gotten pretty good at. And, I, and I've learned it a lot, you know, from people like Jose Yanez and, you know, at the USA when I was there, we had a, we had something that a lot of times talking less is more. So you mentioned earlier as a player, you were pretty perceptive at picking up what was going on, on the other side of the net for the players out there that aren't perceptive yet. How can they develop that skill? What are kind of their first steps to, to getting better at that skill? Watch tennis, watch tennis. I mean, that's a, that's a great way. Watch with a coach, the technologies today, swing vision and all these other things. So, I mean, I'll spend when I'm scouting for Riley's matches or, even when I'm working with Riley, I watch tennis, I would say at least two hours, hour and a half every single day where I'm trying to pick up something. What are these one or two things that I can 
I can learn and I can give to our membership or I can give to a player that I'm coaching. So I think a big one is, is, is watching more tennis. And, and then I think the other thing is just being engaged, being engaged with what's happening. I mean, if you're out there and you're engaged, you should be learning stuff and you should be picking things up. Um, I remember, you know, hopefully the player doesn't watch this and, and remember this, but I was watching, a, we work with a young player. I will not mention his name. Uh, and then we did a swing vision of the match or the mom took a swing vision and they sent it to me. And it doesn't matter what day it is. If you sent me some, a player, I'm obsessed with it. I watch it. And so I'm sitting there on a Saturday night or Sunday night watching this match. And he's playing a player that literally cannot hit a backhand. I mean, cannot hit a backhand. I mean, the ball does not go over the net. It's the worst form you've ever, you've ever seen. And he ended up losing the match. Now, you know, afterwards, the next day we sat down, we watched the match. I'm like, you hit the ball to the back end. What was the result? You don't need to do anything more. Just hit it there. So there are so many tools now nowadays, but I think really it comes down to, do you have an interest? Do you have an interest in learning? Do you have an interest in, in kind of growing as a player? And there's so much opportunity that's out there with the tennis channel, with uh, ATP Tennis TV, there are so many outlets to learn and to watch. And then there are so many out outlets to watch your own matches, whether it's, you know, whether it's tournament matches or practice matches. But I think that the tools of having something like Swing Vision that is very easy is really great and should be used. And it's great for coaches, great for coaches to, to not have to be at a tournament and also still give feedback to the matches. That's something that I do a lot with Riley. So Every match that Riley has played since I started coaching him seven years ago, I have in a catalog, I have on my computer. And the USA is great that every match he plays, by that evening or the next day, I have the match so I can watch the match unemotionally detached from the result because I'm watching live. I'm kind of nervous a little bit or I'm kind of emotionally invested. I, I would rather not watch the match live and watch it one point at a time and being able to slow it down. And then I can get on the phone. I can talk to Jay Wire. I can talk to Riley and say, hey, do you remember this? Or, you know, why didn't you do this? Or, or something about his technique. So one thing I used to do growing up, you're talking about being engaged, but I would have my parents drop me off to my lesson like 30 minutes early. And I would just watch the lesson before me. I was like, I'm getting free coaching. I'm watching this coach talk to another player who yeah. probably has like 90% of the same flaws that I do. And I can watch them struggle with it and go, man, why, why don't they just do this? And then when I can get on the court, I can be the person who just makes the correction. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's another great. Actually, that's something actually all our members do at the club. When I was on the court teaching, we'd have a whole line of play of, of our members watching my, my teaching and trying to pick things up. And it, it, was, it was kind of funny. But, you know, I think more than anything in what you said in that, absolutely true is that you had a desire to learn, a desire to get better, and you were willing to kind of go beyond just showing up to a lesson. And that's kind of what it takes at some point in your in your life to, to be great at anything and certainly to be great at tennis. You already uh, used the buzzword that I was going to ask you about later, Jose Hagueras, and his name yeah. continues to come up, and you worked alongside him at the USTA. We've heard a lot of great stories and a lot of great of his, you know, kind of principles that he taught other coaches, what's one of the biggest things that he taught you? Yeah. So Jose, I would consider him my mentor in coaching. I talked to him in the 10 years I was at the USDA. We talked 
seven days a week, every single week of the of the year. Um, he is a very close friend and somebody that I truly respect. And um, I would say that the main thing that he really helped me with, besides just being somebody that could bounce ideas off, I mean, I still talk to him when I'm coaching a player, along with some other people like Yvonne Lendl. Um, I'm very fortunate that they'll pick up the phone and I'm able to to talk to these great minds of tennis. But I would say that I was always a good coach. I don't know if I was a great coach, but I was always a really good coach because I was a really good player. I cared about our, my, the people I was, um, I was coaching. I was willing to put in the work. But what I found after spending time with Jose is that my thoughts weren't organized. And so I would say that one of the, the main things through Jose that I, I got and through the USTA is when we put together this program that tennis is played with the eyes and the mind, the feet, and then the hands, it totally made sense to me. And it allowed me to organize everything that I do on the court, you know, and, and following progressions and what progressions and regressing a little bit and then going forward. But it really helped me organize how I, how I saw tennis. And that has given me a great op- great ability to go on the court like I do at Ibis, especially when I first start working with Riley. And I might be out there with a 77-year-old uh, lady. I might next have a 14-year-old grandson. Then I have Riley Opelka. And so for me to be organized in how I do things, and I could coach them all using the same philosophy, which was really neat for me. But um, yeah, Jose is, is, is one of my favorite people. And somebody I still talk to, actually, he called me today. I owe him a phone call back. Uh, we still talk, you know, not not every day, but we still talk every couple of weeks. And uh, and uh, and truly a, uh, one of the great people in tennis, but also one of the great minds and really has one of the most interesting stories of how he actually got to where he is. I mean, that's a book or a movie. So a lot of the people that coach with you or know about your coaching say that you're all about habits and how habits lead to a great player. Can you kind of talk about what that means to you? Yeah, I mean, it's just um, doing the right things all the time, especially when you're on the court, you know, having having great principles. I, and I think it kind of goes beyond. I mean, first of all, looking for to spend time with good people, you know, that are, are dedi- dedicated to growing and learning and work, you know, I mean, but, but we also have fun. I mean, I, I work with Riley Opelka. We're on the court, you know, six days a week. When he first started, we didn't take too many days off ever. And, and we have a great time, but the habit of, of kind of presenting a, pre- presenting an atmosphere that is open to learning, that is exciting, that, you know, kind of the players want to, want to come to. Is there a single habit Besides just working hard, if you were going to say, hey, this tennis player has this type of habit, then you think that will lead directly to success. What would that type of habit be? Uh, I, I would say the habit of, of accountability, the habit of, of, I mean, I would say it's not a tennis habit. It's kind of the way, more, more of the way you live your life to be successful in life that, you know, they have a growth mentality. I mean, that's something that is, that is, is huge for me, that you're always trying to get better, that you're process oriented. Now, these things are not easy to develop because unfortunately, sometimes when kids have one bad experience, whether it's with a coach or their parents, and it can kind of really sabotage this openness to learn. And it becomes way more about the success that they're having on a given day or the failure that they're having. You know, and, and I always, I'm never 
whether it was with my son or a player, I'm never concerned if I believe in the player and the in the process that we're going through. And I be, and I believe in the player and I also believe in the process that we're going through. Then there's not concern. We're just learning. We're just getting better. We're, oh, that didn't work. Let's adjust. But I always feel comfortable um, with the players that I coach when when certainly I believe in them and I believe in what we're doing. I'm curious. I'm, I might be walking into a minefield right now with you and you might be roasting me, but you mentioned accountability. And one thing that's been kind of popping up on my radar the last couple of months is players will come back from a tournament and at some point they lost because it's tough to win the event. Sure. And a lot of times in that loss, they'll say, I played better than my opponent, but I lost. And I always, I view that as number one, I think it's impossible. You, you stepped on the court to win two sets you didn't do it yet somehow you were better at that than your opponent. And I view it as a lack of accountability. You know, maybe you did some things better. Maybe you hit the ball better. Maybe you got more break points, maybe you even won more points, but that wasn't your goal. And I feel like there's a lack of accountability in that response. I'm just curious how you view that. Yeah, I, I definitely, I hear that some, I hear also the opposite of that is, is that I think there lack of accountability can be, Oh, I did exactly what you said, Jonathan. I hit the ball big on every... Yeah, but you didn't make any of them. I mean, we have to have some accountability. Like, it's not just... I mean, it is a game, and we have to learn, and you've got you've to change things. It's not just hitting a tennis ball. I mean, you might hit the ball better. Boy, I played a lot of players hit the ball a lot better than I did, but in the end, I won. So understanding the different facets of the game, and, and I think that is a little bit of a probably a, a, a scapegoat or, you know, um, rationalization. You know, I played better than him. He won or he, he did this or she did that or I got a bad luck there. I think taking ownership for it is, you know, I did X, Y, and Z really well. But, I, Coach, I really need to work on these two or three things. These really hurt me. You know, that's what I'd really like to hear from a from a player, not, you know, the player got lucky. And as I tell him, like, if I'm watching, I'll tell you when they got lucky. You know, you can't you can't have bad luck every single match. So I, I think a little bit of that comes from, I think probably also kind of the conversations they're having with their parents, which spend a lot of time. And that's something that is is really important for us to have success. Uh, we've got to have all the same philosophy. The coach can't have one philosophy. And the parents authentically not believing in that philosophy. And I think that does happen a lot. And and it's not because the parents are not trying to help the kids. It's maybe because they just don't know any better. Or they become too emotionally involved. But I really think everything comes down to being detached from results to some regards and focusing on getting better. That's it. That's it. If you believe in the player, then just continuing to focus on getting better is going to produce your best results. We're going to finish up with some Instagram questions. Uh, some of these are some of these are quick. Some of them are actually pretty specific. Um, the first, we had a couple of people. They want to know what your best drills are to improve consistency from the baseline. Consistency from the baseline. So, I mean, there are a couple of drills that I do a lot. So, um, if if I have a player, and, and part of this is, is to kind of see what they have in their in their stomach, in their legs, in their heart. Um, so, I do something that you know, if you asked all the players that I've spent time with and that we're at the USDA, the Tommy Pauls, the Francis TFOs, any of them, they'll, they'll call it the George drills, which was named after my coach. Now they call them the J drills named after me. 
And that is really just kind of really pushing a player with accountability. And we can call it calligraphy, kind of moving to moving out to a forehand, looking at their footwork, but always with accountability of making balls. And, and that's a drill, doing it. So generally, I do it 10 to 12 times, move out to the right. You have to recover sidestepping, move out to the right. You have to do it, depending on the player, 10 to 12 times. You have to do four hands. I only count the balls you make. Um, so it could be 20 balls. Then I do it on the backhand. Then I do it side to side. Then I give them a second. I repeat it. And then we get a drink. And I do that. Yeah, it's a it's quite a physical drill. I have to say that if somebody can get through those drills, they're probably going to be playing pretty well. and They're going to be very consistent. Um, the other drills that I do for consistency is just starting off at the beginning. I mean, I'm very much into playing. I always want people's minds engaged. So even when they're first starting off hitting balls, um, I want them engaged and kind of playing the game of tennis. So we're not just hitting up the middle. We're kind of still using our patterns. We're not hitting winners, but we're, we're, we're quite engaged in that. And then the third one I would say is that I jokingly, when I'm with a player and they're doing maybe cross courts, I'll keep track of how many, what the score is. All right, 2-1. He doesn't know you're playing the game, but you're playing the game. You know, all right, three one, three two, four two. So I think a lot of it is accountability and and um, and engagement. Engagement. You're talking about making balls right off the bat. One of my biggest pet peeves as a coach is like I'd say 99 percent of my players start with mini tennis. Yeah, they, they don't move their feet and they miss like half the balls. And I'm going, what? Tell me what the purpose of this drill is. Yeah, exactly. What are we doing here? Yeah. Yeah. That one, that one drives me insane. Okay. This person, uh, you know, you've coached top 10 players in the world all the way down to three, five ladies doubles. Is there anything common between all levels that you see players struggling with today? Between those levels, probably <laughs> not so much to be honest. Um, you know, but, but I still think, like I said, is that I definitely do use the same philosophy in regards to how I see the game, uh, for each player. Um, with the younger, with the, the club player, really the biggest thing that I see them struggle with is um, reading the ball, first of all, reading what they send as well. So we call it playing blind. So a lot of times I'll be watching the doubles. They hit a ball. It's almost like they put their head down. They look up where the ball is going and they start running. So we call that playing blind. That's a common term used at our club. And then I think with um, with with beginners, and a lot of the club players, the use of their non-dominant arm. I mean, that's been pretty shocking to me that, you know, they just, their their non-dominant arm is just kind of by their side, you know, and that's something that also is, is really important in, in working with, you know, with the better players. I can't say that Riley Opelka or Jack Sock struggle with the same thing that somebody that's a 3.5 player. However, I will say something. They struggle with the anxiety in regards to tennis. So I think the same feeling that a pro serving at a match has is very similar to a D5 player trying to serve out a match. Uh, unfortunately, the, the pro has more tools in the bag to kind of to kind of reach out to be able to help themselves. But, but we, we call at our club, we call no matter what age you are and, and, you know, we have so many, it has been actually quite inspiring 
I give lessons to 83-year-old players that want to get better, that are engaged. They, we work the same drills. We work on footwork. We work on movement. I mean, we use the same terms. So it's been really inspiring and actually changed my life to spend time on our club and to see these members that are engaged and trying to get better and learn about whatever they're doing. And, 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 and that's what makes it a lot of fun. I want to see video evidence of the 83 year old member doing the J drills in the summer. I'm telling you, <laughs> we have some 83 year old members that I tell Riley all the time. You cannot believe how they move. I mean, I wouldn't want to race them. I would not want to race them. One is called flash. We call them flash. Amazing. Riley asks about flash every time I, every time when Riley's on a trip, how's flash doing? So we, we have some really neat members and it, and it makes it a lot of fun for our staff. That's great. This person wanted to know, obviously you've never seen them. I'm assuming they're about three, five or four Oh, but uh, she asked, why do I always feel a second late when I'm poaching in doubles? Probably not recognizing. I mean, f- first of all, it, it's kind of interesting. It depends on the age, but some of it is movement. Um, but some of it is putting yourself in the right position before you, you poach. So, I mean, we call it kind of pinching the middle. Um, and, and we're fortunate, like we have on Monday, Dave Marshall is actually coming to our club. Uh, I don't know if you know who Dave Marshall is, but he's right now coaching uh, two players in the world championships. So um, I, I definitely think player putting themselves in the right position. So really understanding what your partner is sending. So then you can be in the right position, then you can make a move. Um, and especially if your movement is a little bit compromised, like mine is, I don't move so well anymore. So it's so important to put myself in the right position to be able to to make a move from there. This person was a, a big fan from your playing days. And if you can remember all the way back then, they wanted to know what led to you dominating uh, Mats Wielander the two times that you beat him. I don't know. I mean, I had some good, I had some some great wins. It's it, it a funny story is that I did a talk one time, uh, JTCC. I was honored by JTCC, which was really nice. And Max Wielander, who has done a lot there, was in the stands. And funny enough, I used to come up with my own mental techniques. I was very much into sports psychology. I was introduced to it at a very young age from my dad and always had a very big interest in it. So I used to do something called acting. So I was so intense on the court at times, I needed to calm myself down. So one of the things to calm myself down is I liked the way Matt Wielander, how calm he was on the court. So I would pretend like I'm Matt Wielander. So I actually pretended like I was Matt Wielander and beat Matt Wielander. But, you know, I don't know. I, I, I guess um, I played him twice. I did beat him, beat him quite handily both times. And I don't know if I just played well or he didn't play very well at that moment, but uh yeah, he didn't, you know, I didn't feel as many threats from him as I did from somebody like Alendo, who I never beat, or an Andre Agassi. Um, you know, I felt very comfortable being in that, being that he was not going to hurt me and I was willing to suffer like he was willing to suffer. And finally, the most important question, what is your best advice for the 3-5 or 4-0 player? Keep keep learning. Uh, there, there are a couple of things. First of all, I think it's really important if you can get on a physical program and, and really make sure that your tennis game is not limited by physical, physical limitations. I think that's really important. And then, and then really 
understanding that everybody can get better. Everybody can get better. It's so neat to see people that um, watch videos like your, you know, that you have on 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 your Instagram, and really take it and go out there and really try to get better. So if you're engaged, I mean, we they're athletes, and and you can no matter what age you are, you can learn and you can get better. I think some of the most important things is less worrying about the stroke because those are really hard to change, and more more understanding of what you are sending to to a player what you're receiving in the footwork and shot selection we we sometimes i see even in the pros a lot of and certainly a lot of coaches when a ball's missed the first thing they go to is what the racket hand did in reality um they didn't react properly to the shot they hit they didn't read the play the ball coming to them therefore they didn't put their feet in the right position Therefore, of course, your your arm's not going to move the correct way. So I think a little bit less focus on the technique and a little more focus on remembering this is a game and how do we play the game. Love that advice. Jay, this has been great for me. You're, you're someone I've looked up to as a player when I was coaching at Duke and I got to come down and visit USDA. You were you know, kind of like the godfather, but thank you so much for this time and for helping us all learn. My pleasure. All right, I want to thank Jay for coming on the show today. He's a coach I've looked up to for a really long time. I honestly love his simple drill at the beginning of the episode where the player simulates what 0 out of 10 intensity looks like all the way up to 10 so you can feel what is right for you. Playing at the optimal intensity and energy level is incredibly important if you want to feel comfortable in matches. I also want to remind you that bonus episodes are now available on Apple. You can simply subscribe from your Apple Podcast app with a free trial. If you don't use Apple, there's a link in the show notes to subscribe through Captivate, which is the platform that hosts my podcast. And then I've also recently started a YouTube channel with longer instructional videos and clips from the podcast as well. So there's a link in the show notes to subscribe to the YouTube channel as well. Thanks again for listening and supporting the show. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a tennis ball.